Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I am Jay Dylan Proctor, and with me here in Cord Purgatory is Anthony Alegria, and he does so much to help out with production, and you'll hear some of his comments today. As we go through our program today, we're going to start off with a conversation about fatherhood in the modern era. We're actually going to have guests on with that, which will be Tyler from the Dark Horse Garage. He'll be joining us to talk a bit about fatherhood. We live in this day and age where people have a hard time making distinctions between authority and responsibility. So many times people hear the language of the father being the head of household and they think that this means something akin to a totalitarian authority-like rule. However, it's much more akin to the idea of responsibility and sacrifice. So we're going to be talking about that. And after we have that conversation, we're going to come back and talk a bit about the due process. Particularly, we're going to be talking about withholding judgment until we have a proper amount of evidence. And see, so many times we assume that if we have a little bit of evidence or we have something which we can rationalize, then that's good enough. But just having a bit of evidence really isn't enough. We need to have a a full, all-encompassing, or at least adequately encompassing understanding of the situations at hand and withhold judgment until we have proper understanding. We're going to be talking about that in the context of the Gospel of John. We're going to go back to talk a bit more about Nicodemus, and then we will wrap up our program afterwards. So stick around. I hope you enjoy our podcast. All right, so with us again today is Tyler with The Dark Horse Garage. Tyler's guest on our program before, and exciting to have you back, Tyler. Glad to be back, Dylan. It is wonderful indeed. All right, so I have a question for you. A lot of the modern movements in our world want to portray that The father being the head of the household is something akin to the patriarchy. And it's really this idea that if the father is the head of the household, this means they have power. And usually the sentiment which is being conveyed is that it's some sort of institution for totalitarian rule by the father. But I think this is a wild misunderstanding of what it means to be the head of household. I think a better understanding of what this means is that the father, who is the head of the household, has a role of responsibility which oftentimes means sacrifice. What are your thoughts on this, the father being the head of household and the idea of responsibility as opposed to totalitarian rule? I, I think that's a that's a pretty good analysis. I, I don't think I have totalitarian rule over the household. I, I pretty much have to break down negotiations on an hourly basis. I, actually, uh, what happened before we got this conversation started, my three, uh, four-year-old, wanted to uh, come outside and sit in with me and I had to negotiate with her that I'd come get with her afterwards. But uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a give and take relationship. There's no, there's no complete control. I have, I have some authority, but most of the time that gets overridden by mama. Yeah. Uh, And I just have to sit back and, you know, kind of let it roll and pick my battles, but I don't have complete control. Um, But I do feel like my responsibility is to make sure that, the house is taken care of, the land's taken care of, the vehicles are taken care of. Um, anything else that I need to do to make sure, ensure that we can continue continue on for the next few days or week until, until Tori, my wife, gets off of work or something and she can take over and help me out. Yeah. I, just, I, I feel like I uh, well, there's the, a huge responsibility on me. Yeah, there's to, a huge responsibility for sure. And even... Every, where you're living at now, you moved for a better job situation so that you could better provide for your family. Is this this not the case? Oh, yeah, 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 that's a good topic there. Um, yeah, so uh, about a year and a half ago, I decided to take a, a new position and uh, 
I primarily took it for the insurance benefits and the retirement package, um, seeing as the health insurance was top notch. And, and that's actually that's a whole other subject we could get into a discussion about uh, yeah. as far as going off of like socialized healthcare versus job hunting for employers that offer better health insurance. But that's a topic for another day. But yeah, yeah well, so I uh, I picked the family up and moved them um, 100 miles away from the rest of our family. And this is the first time in my life I've ever. I've ever lived so far away from family, and so it it was actually kind of shocking to me, and I I, I was pretty uncomfortable with it. But uh, it's gotten better now. But uh, the family decided to follow my lead and, and and come down here with me, and I felt like that was a responsibility I owed. Or that a responsibility that I had, which I owed them, was the access to good health care, and uh, it it did benefit all of them. Well, I think that's really such an important thing. We've lost the idea of of personal responsibility in the role of the collective. We live in this world where so many people in our culture have a hard time drawing distinctions. They look at something like the phrase head of household, they say, oh, well, this is all power. And they can't see that there are distinctions from the role of the father having responsibility, but also when it comes to the practical negotiations of family life. It's pretty obvious that you and your wife both, um, you and, and Tori, have a, a huge job balancing the role both of you have. I know you play different roles in terms of parenting, but just the social negotiations on how the family operates is not a unilateral thing. It's not like there's all power on one side or all power on the other side, but there really is a balance that goes there. And I think there's just such a, a role of responsibility that we've lost. And I'll just get your thoughts on this. When you look at the culture around us, do you see that people have a problem making distinctions? And Basically, what I mean when I say that is so many people in their, their fight to push against the patriarchy, they say, oh, well, the fathers, they had all the power in the past, which I don't think that that's true at all. Um, but they look at that and they say, well, our solution now is to remove all power from the father and to, to try to demean the role of the father in the modern world. Do you see that happening? Yeah, I see that. that that's actually yeah, it's happening quite often uh, here in our, our generation. Um, I. I, I don't know if this is a valid argument or not, but I almost feel like that kind of goes against biology in, in its own uh, in its own uh, relationship to the subject. I guess we're supposed to be the ones that, that do lead and we're supposed to be the ones that are, are responsible for the family's outcome and everything else. And, you know, I feel like women tend to be more of the nurturing, family raising, uh, taking care of the children at times. But, yeah, it, it's a huge trade-off. My wife, she works 12-hour day shifts, uh, uh, two days on, two days off. She kind of rotates out every few mm. days. And when she's not here, I'm at home with the kids, raising them, feeding them, nurturing them. And whenever I'm gone at, to work at nighttime, well, she's doing the same thing. So there's a constant trade-off. And if there's something else, something I need done around the house or with a vehicle, usually I can trade that off with her and have her do it. But if, uh, if things keep getting stripped, I'm afraid that uh, – I'm afraid the outcome might be that men might just give up completely on even trying to take care of a family. Yeah. You know, if you keep taking away, well, then what's the point in even trying? Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the, the things which is so interesting about our modern culture is we have such luxuries here in the West that we've largely forgot a lot of the, the biological origins for how families are raised. We forgot the necessity it is for having two parents who are at home who accept children at a young age and how that is a healthy 
place for cognitive development. It makes for healthier children when you have a mother and father who invest in the children. You have a father who is saying, look, the world is a brutal place and survival is not always easy. And I know that sounds really primitive to say, but the role of the father historically being, I'm going to take on the responsibility to make sure that we all live and we can all be safe. And the mother takes on the responsibility that says, I'm going to, to do some nurturing here. And we have a little bit different roles in the way that we involve in our children's life. But at the same time in this modern world with the trade-offs happening with the ease of resources, people do have a long time figuring out what is the, the good role of the father. I think especially as we watch how fathers are, are generally portrayed in Hollywood, there's usually sort of a stereotype of how that goes down. And we, we've lost this idea of, of good father figures. Yeah. Yeah, look, the father, in my opinion, is supposed to be there, like you said, to protect and ensure the survival of the family, uh, the procurement of resources, whether it's uh, through uh, money, through food, housing, vehicle transportation. You know, that I feel like that is kind of more so up to us. Uh, but it is, there is that negotiation factor, and that comes into play uh, between myself and the wife on, on that, you know, just dealing with vehicles or spending right. money or, or whatever. She's got total say. She's got 50-50 control of everything. I, I'm, I, most of the time I have to sit back and let her ride on that. But I, but I do think of what you're saying as far as the, the role is teaching the kids the importance and of, uh, of uh, pretty primitive topics of trying to just survive and, and ensure our security and everything else. I think that is a role that, that I feel like I have to take on more so than my wife. I don't yeah, I don't feel like she's ever as interested in that subject as I am. Uh, <coughs> um, and, I, and and all around, I, I do believe that statistically shown that that the male figure in the household is extremely important to successful outcome in the children's future. Well, sure. If we look at, I mean, there's empirical evidence out on this. If we look at what are risk factors for people growing up to be lifelong antisocial behaviors, and by that I mean people who are lifelong criminal, essentially, one of the biggest risk factors we have for that is not having a father in the household. Recidivism rates, which is the likelihood that somebody will return to crime, is just through the roof for people that don't have father figures at home. Um, having an absent father does devastating things to people. Even if we look at church attendance, people who are taken to church by their dad or their dad is present in church with them are much more likely to return to church as an adult, whereas it's kind of split, may or may not happen if it's the mother that takes them. One of the, which for time purposes, we've got to wrap up this conversation, but I want to have one, one final thought I'll pose to you, Tyler, and you can tell me your thoughts and we'll wrap up. In this world where we've got such an issue figuring out the roles between the father and the mother, so many people want to say, well, if the father's called the head of the household, that's bad because it demeans the, the value of the mother. But I really think, and from the Christian perspective, particularly the New Testament perspective, where there is neither male nor female in Christ, but there's a value that is not in your fleshly birth, but in your identity as a, a born-again Christian, there's this idea that men and women play a complementary role. And it's not necessarily a, a bad thing that, they are, that there are distinctions between men and women. Women have a particular role they play, and it's not above, it's not below what men play. Women play a role that is largely connected to nurturing, which is a very important role. Men play a role which is more akin to protecting and, and finding resources, and women oftentimes are the ones who use those resources for different things. 
Um, what is your thought on the complementary role of men and women? I think it could be looked at as a as the head of household could be more of a like a, a joint task. Like it's yeah. something you have to set aside and both come together and uh, make decisions on. Could we say that? And yeah. as far as the complementing, uh, I do believe that that you're right in that the the women are there more so for nurturing. I know I don't have as much patience as the wife does sometimes mm-hmm. when it comes to the children, um, especially at their younger ages. And I don't necessarily see her out there. Uh, I guess in a nomadic way, hunting and gathering resources for our survival. Yeah. As much as I do myself, but I could be wrong. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm not in her shoes on a daily basis. But, um, but I think there's that compliment, and, and that that really, it just it's a proven compliment over generations, thousands of years that that has to continue on. I don't think you can really devalue the man and continue having a productive society. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe that maybe some things will change here in the near future, and maybe people will start swaying back to the more traditional ways. Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap that up there. Um, I certainly think that the understanding that men and women are complementary to one another is the most appropriate understanding of the differences between genders. So many times, people want to say, "Well, if there's difference, then one must be better than the other." That that's not the case at all. But anyways, thank you for being here, Tyler. And again, just to give one more plug for your channel, The Dark Horse Garage. Um, Thanks for being with us, Tyler. Thanks for having me. And today we're going to be talking a bit more about the due process. We brought this up last week when we were discussing Nicodemus and sort of this idea that the due process is not just something with legal systems and court systems, but it's something that is personally relevant to our lives. And of course, this is very true in the social media age we live. So the due process really is a crucial personal virtue that we should have. We should have appreciation for the idea of withholding judgment, reserving even the application of our own discernment and wisdom until we really get a good grasp of evidence. Especially when we're deciding moral issues. Not everything in the world is a moral issue, but we should withhold our decisions until we have evidence. However, Anthony has pointed out there really is a problem with how we understand this that emerges. Well, one thing that I've noticed is that, um, you know, we have to... When is it that the due process has actually been fulfilled? How do we recognize whenever we actually have met a moment of certainty in order to pass our judgment? Yeah, and really this is the idea is when do you have enough evidence? And another problem is is a lot of times people think they have evidence, or maybe they even do have evidence, and therefore they think, well, the, the process of waiting, why do I need to wait? I've had something presented to me, and a lot of times this happens with, with social interactions that people have. You see this all the time. Somebody said this about me. Someone hears gossip, and they say, well, I've heard this. Or maybe they even witnessed something firsthand, and they say, well, I have enough to pass judgment. The reason why we, especially in the church, are commanded to to be very careful about how we pass judgment again, the commandment isn't that we should not judge, but in other words, Christ will judge us as we have judged others. And there's a big difference between not using any judgment at all, because it's ridiculous. We, We use judgment all the time. The word judgment doesn't just mean condemnation, though there's a word for that. If you go back to the Greek, the language that the New Testament is written in, there's the word krino and kriso. One of them means condemnation. The other one means just to think about something. We are going to use judgment, but the question is, are we people who think about things and use logical discernment that is good, or are we people who are not so much interested interested in, in good justice, but we're just interested in condemnation? 
Christ tells us that we shouldn't be people of condemnation, but we should be people who, like him, offer a new judgment that is productive and moves people towards holiness. So, one of the things that happens is a lot of times people want to circumvent the process of, of withholding and reserving judgment, and they may do this because they actually have evidence. And the, one of the problems that we have is that sometimes our understanding of evidence can be corrupted, and this is why we need a process of evaluation. The true standard we really have when presented evidence, because again, we're, we're not going to be able to, to account for everything in reality every time we have to make a decision, but one of the standards which is important is, is it consistent with reality? Even the idea of truth itself is connected with the idea of being reliable. So, to answer Anthony's question, when do we know that the due process has been complete? Well, the answer is when we have a hypothesis to why something happened that is consistent with reality, where we can go out and explore it. Now, that sounds like a lot of wordy language, talking about consistency, due process, evidence. All of these are, are words which we don't use in day-to-day -day language, unless you're someone who is either a lawyer or completely crazy. So, I want us to actually use a down-to-earth example to discuss what I mean when we say we need something consistent. Anthony, would you mind reading for us out of John chapter 7, the passage where Nicodemus comes around people who really don't want to withhold judgment? Yep. This is John chapter 7, verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one spoke, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered him, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? See, search and see, that no prophet arises from Galilee. Alright, and that is what I wanted us to take an examination of. Really that last little bit there at the end. Basically what's happened, this is the middle of the gospel, this isn't the end where Jesus is, is finally arrested, but they want to arrest Jesus without having a hearing, after they get, they basically just want to with or withhold judgment that would happen in a court setting. They just want to pass judgment of condemnation without actually listening and hearing arguments and debate and receiving good evidence. They have a little bit of evidence, which is what they use against them. And if you listen close to the story, basically they say, "Oh, he's from Galilee. You Nicodemus are from Galilee. Look, go look in the records and see that no prophet has ever come from Galilee." Well, you know what? That may be true, but that doesn't mean that, one, Jesus is not a prophet, or much less that he's not the Messiah. Again, people don't really understand who he is, and I'm not saying that Jesus was just a prophet, not the Messiah. Jesus was very much the Messiah, but even the argument they're trying to make, whether or not he's a prophet, their excuse and the evidence they have isn't valid. That's, that's not a good argument. The fact that no prophet has come from Galilee, that doesn't mean that Jesus can't be one. Identity politics is not an argument. At least not a valid one anyways. But we see people all the time, they try to do this. They say, oh, well, we'll go and look, and you don't match up demographically. Therefore, whatever you say is invalid. No, it's ridiculous. 
And again, these people aren't lit wanting to listen to the due process or not wanting to, to wait to have a hearing. They just want to, to meet the demands of their emotions. So that's one of the problems we have with this is the, the whole identity politics side of it. Another thing that happens here is they really do not want to wait for a hearing because they feel as if they have enough evidence as it is. Again, we see this all the time in our modern world. People, they hear an accusation, they look at someone and say, I could see that person doing that, and they don't really wait to hear the other side of the story. Or perhaps they even do have evidence, such as what the leaders here had, where they said, well, no prophets come from Galilee before. That's good enough that this guy is a crook. He's not a good guy. We need to have him gone. But it's not really an argument. We really need to withhold judgment till we have enough evidence that is reliable and it actually matches reality. Again, just because Jesus was from Galilee doesn't mean that he can't be speaking on behalf of the will of the Father. Well, let's listen to two quotes from G.K. Chesterton that I really think are phenomenal and helping us understand a lot of the corruption we have in our world. So G.K. Chesterton, in his book Orthodoxy, he wrote this. The lunatic's theory explains a large number of things, but it does not explain them in a large way. We have so many people in our world, they involve themselves in a lot of modern movements. Um, a lot of times they qualify justice with the word social, and they have an explanation for a lot of things in the world, but they're really extraordinarily simple explanations. They, they say everything is privilege, power, and oppression. However, these are not big enough explanations to take in all the, the factors in life. They're actually quite small explanations that are terribly insufficient, and they're terribly unreliable explanations as well. But they do have a, a, a circle that they have created that really explains things. And because they see it, they feel like they've got evidence, they find things which match that, well, that's good enough for them. They don't think they need debate. They don't think they need argument. They feel as if everything is, is settled, but it's not. So just having a little bit of evidence isn't enough. It's got to be good evidence. It's got to be something that's, that's actually relevant and meaningful. Another quote from G.K. Chesterton, also from the book Orthodoxy, is this. Nevertheless, the lunatic is wrong, but if we attempt to trace his error in exact terms, we shall not find it quite so easy as we had supposed. Perhaps the nearest we can get to expressing it is to say this, that his mind moves in a perfect, but narrow, circle. A small circle is quite as infinite as a large circle, but, though it is quite as infinite, it is not so large. In the same way, the insane explanation is quite as complete as the sane one, but it is not so large. A bullet is quite as round as the world, but it is not the world. There is such a thing as a narrow universality, and there is such a thing as a small and cramped eternity. And you may see it in many modern religions. So basically what Chesterton is saying is this. These people, they have rationalized an explanation for certain things in reality, and they see it as rational, and it's complete, it makes full circle, but it's not big enough to deal with everything that's in the world. It's, it's incomplete. It's, it's not big enough to, to cover all the variables. It's only big enough to cover a few of them. It's complete in a small way, but it's not complete in the sense that it's all-encompassing. And that's where we find a lot of people. They want to circumvent the due process, not because they're completely without reason. They're just with bad reason. They're with a, a bad rationalization for things. And that really is a a disheartening thing because I really do want our world to move to a better place. I want us to move out of chaos. I want us to move towards wholeness and completeness, which is very connected to the concept of holiness. But in order for us to overcome the people in our world who are resistant to the due process 
and resistant to good evidence, we really have to understand where they're at. And we have to understand these people, they think that they're fully rationalized. And they have theories, they have explanations, but they just don't hold up to scrutiny. Well, anyways, we're going to wrap up this conversation right there. And for those of you who watch the program, I thank you so much for, for sticking around with us. We are growing. We are looking to develop. If you enjoy our content, you can help us out so much just by clicking that share button right below the video. That will do so much for us if you share it to your own page, your own timeline, or maybe you just grab a link and send it to someone else. Again, you can find us on Facebook at Kingdom of the Logos. You can find us on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, and CastBox on our free downloadable podcast. But also, if you really would like to support us, and again, we are looking to expand. We're looking to get better technology. You can also find us on Patreon if you would like to, to donate to our calls monetarily. And of course, you can find us on Patreon's website at patreon.com slash kingdom of the logos. Again, we thank you so much for spending time with us. I know it's a, it's a big ask to ask someone to spend a few minutes with you, but we really do appreciate it. And again, I'm Jay Dental Proctor, here with Anthony Alegria at Kingdom of the Logos, and have a blessed day.